One night I was in bed and I saw this figure floating at the end of my bed on the side of my bed. I put the blankets back down under my chin and I said, Mum? Well, then all of a sudden it just fell out of my mouth. This anger rose up in me and I, it just fell out of my mouth. And I said, do you know what happened to us in the orphanages? You know, why did you leave us? You know, do you know what happened to us? You weren't there, you left us. You know, I was so angry. All this stuff just fell out of my mouth. And she said to me, she said, Sonia, this is why I'm here. She said, I want to tell you, I am so sorry. Welcome to the Spirit Sisters podcast. My name is Karina Machado and I'm the author of Spirit Sisters, Women's True Stories of the Paranormal. In this podcast, I'll revisit the women behind my most unforgettable stories and unearth new tales to chill, intrigue, astound and offer hope. You'll hear first-hand accounts of ghostly visitors, near-death experiences, premonitions, hauntings and love more powerful than death. Whatever you believe about the afterlife, I invite you to open your minds and hearts as ordinary women reveal their extraordinary encounters. Hi everyone, welcome to Spirit Sisters the podcast. If you tune in to every episode, thank you very much. And if you're a newcomer, I'm so happy that you're joining us. Before I turn to today's episode, quick reminder that if you love the show, please subscribe, rate the show and leave me a review. Apart from how much I love reading your feedback and the encouragement it always gives me, it's really the only way to spread the word about the podcast and help others find their way to us. Thank you so much to all of you who've taken the time to rate and review. Today's episode is part one of a two-part interview with Sonia St. Clair. Sonia, who lives in Queensland, Australia, is the author of the 2014 memoir, The Girl in the Locker. When Sonia and her twin sister Sandra were three months old, their mother gave them up to an orphanage. That was the first of five orphanages the girls lived in up until they were 14, when Sonia almost died in the nun's care. This led to a near-death experience, which Sonia tells us about, after which the sisters who'd suffered horrific abuse all their young lives at the hands of adults who were supposed to look after them were returned to their mother. But sadly, rather than this being a fresh start, it only launched a new chapter of pain and trauma. But Sonia's story has another dimension, which is why I invited her to come on the show to share her experiences. Throughout unimaginable horrors in childhood and well into her adult years, Sonia never lost her connection to the divine, which she calls God. If you're uncomfortable with that term, I encourage you to rename it love or life, source, anything else. But just keep on listening because Sonia's experiences are testament to the healing and sustaining power of remembering our spiritual spark and staying in touch with that side of ourselves. In her most recent book, God's Messages, Sonia shares a lifetime of stories about her ongoing conversation with the divine and the hope it's brought her, even during the darkest times. This is the harrowing story of a very courageous woman, 
please know that it mentions physical and sexual abuse and domestic violence. If any of this raises issues for you, you can call Lifeline in Australia on 13 11 14. The organisation No More also offers free legal advice and support to survivors of institutional child sexual abuse. That's No More, K-N-O-W-M-O-R-E. Please visit nomore.org.au or call them on 1800 605 762. Finally, I'd like to dedicate this episode and its sequel to the children Sonia references who lost their lives in institutions in Australia and around the world. We don't know their names, but they are not forgotten. Hi, Sonia. Welcome to Spirit Sisters. Hi, Karina. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's, it's great to have you on the show. Now, we're going to get straight into talking about your biography, The Girl in the Locker. That was released in 2014. Could you please begin by just sharing a little bit about your life and why you felt it was so important to write that memoir? Well, my twin sister and I back in 1950, uh, we were put in orphanages by our mother for the first 14 years of our lives. We spent 14 years in five different orphanages and suffered a lot of abuse, horrendous abuse of all kind. And um, because of because of what happened to us, we ended up, you know, with the what ensued for us was more abuse in our adult life because that was familiar and that was what we knew. So hence, I ended up marrying a violent alcoholic until I finally got my act together at 40, took me a long time, to leave him and start getting my act together and, and starting to believe in myself that I was worthy of more than that. Because of what happened to me as a child, it carried on into my adult life and I had to change things and so I went into therapy and and I started to realise that I really need to get out what happened to us because I think people needed to know when I did try and mention things that happened to me and my sister. Back in those days, people were stunned and shocked and didn't want to know. But then once the Royal Commission came out, perfect timing. So I wrote The Girl in the Locker because um, people really needed to know what was happening in these orphanages. And also it gave a voice to my sister too, what happened to her. I think people really needed to know what went on. And, of course, now everyone knows what happened back in those. It is quite a harrowing read, The Girl in the Locker. It is, um, in some parts, difficult to to read what happened to you, Sonia, as a, as a child and as a young person, just horrific, and, and to your sister as well. But ultimately what shines through, and I think as our, as our interview continues today, our guests, our listeners will, will understand this, is, is your courage and, and your powerful message of not just self-love and self-worth, but also the importance of connecting to spirit and to connecting to the divine aspect of ourselves and how that can support us in the most difficult moments. In your memoir and in your most recent book, God's Messages, you write about this powerful bond that you've had since spirit, since you were at least seven. Is that right, Sonia? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Tell us about the moment that you first understood that there was this power that was 
seemingly outside of yourself, seemingly removed from the world of the physical senses and that you could communicate with it? For me, for me, it was natural and my memory goes back to when I was seven, when I went into this other orphanage. It was our third orphanage that we had gone into. And we were taken upstairs to our dormitory and before going into the dormitory there was a landing where a statue of God, our Lord, was up on a pedestal. And as soon as I saw him, I was riveted. I just couldn't take my eyes off him and that's when he spoke to me telepathically and that's when I understood and knew about my life and what would continue for me. That's the first time that it happened to me. I don't remember it happening before, although it may have. And for me it was just natural and normal that that that, that did happen. You know, for me I thought everyone heard God Mm. had conversations with God. For me, it was normal and natural, and so I had this feeling and this knowing and the awareness of him. And for me, it was normal to have that awareness of what was happening with me and how I could hear him telepathically. To me, it was normal. Well, one of the most fascinating aspects of that is that you were a child that had been put into an orphanage as an infant. You hadn't had spiritual grounding or, or or education within sort of any sort of about any sort of education about spirituality or faith. So this was something innate in you. Yes, it was. You see, people think, you know, when these things happen to you, it's a real it's really extraordinary and and, and very profound, but really it's natural and normal. We are all connected to God. When we're born, we're still connected to heaven and God. And um, as we become older and earthbound, you know, things do change. But for me, it didn't change. It was just normal and natural for me. And it was innate. And the awareness that I had was striking more than the spiritual, you know, experience because I was so aware of him and my surroundings and what was happening to me. But the way he spoke to me was it was like I had surrendered because what he was saying to me was that my life would be like this and nothing was going to change anytime soon and I accepted that. So I guess looking back, that was what we would now describe as a spiritually transformative experience, so a a very sacred moment, in Sonia, indeed, and it was triggered by your experience of going up the stairs, I think it was, and seeing this statue. Mm. Yeah, tell like us. Like I already knew, it was to me I was already transformed spiritually. It was already natural. It was already innate. And what triggered it was the presence of him sort of physically in this statue. Although I was aware of him and felt him, it was seeing him that way. It was a real trigger because he was up on a pedestal. You know, he was just so, just so, you know, in all his glory there for me as a seven-year-old. It was just, oh, I can see him. I understand now. I can see him. This is him. This is what I'm feeling. This is the awareness. That's what happened to me that day on the landing. And... You were given this understanding 
of what your life would be. And indeed, that was quite a bleak picture. But as you say, you you just accepted it. It was a bleak picture, but you know, my whole life was already bleak at seven. I was already orphanage weary, but it was all I knew. There was nothing else. There was nothing else to compare it with. So for me, it was my normal. And I thought that was everyone's normal. All the children around me, it was their normal too. And so not living on in the outside world, I didn't know what was happening in the outside world. I didn't know there was happiness and love and people treated you beautifully and so lovingly and so kind. You know, I didn't experience that, so I didn't know that. So bleak to me was my normal. There was nothing else. Also within that encounter, you had the understanding that we are all connected. Tell us about that. We are all connected because we are all God's children. He loves each and every one of us and we are all brothers and sisters. Sadly, we don't always see each other in a loving and kind way. But, you know, when I had my near-death experience, you know, we are all the same. We are all here to be loved. We are all here to love and to love one another. And we are all connected. It's tapping into that and believing we are worthy to be connected because some people don't even believe they, they're worthy enough to be connected to God because they're sinful or they're whatever. And we are. We are worthy and we are all connected. People just need to believe that. And I think what I'm what I'm trying to to unpick here is that you understood these these deep truths about love and about connection, whereas your physical life did not provide any sort of love and kindness. You weren't experiencing that, yet in your heart you understood that the truth was love and was connection. And that to me seems seems amazing. You know, when I was in the orphanages, I didn't hate anyone. I wasn't bitter against the nuns. I didn't have any malice toward them. It it was it was what it was. And you know, when I used to pray in bed every night to the statue in my dormitory to take me to heaven because I didn't want to be earthbound anymore because I knew there was more innately, somehow, some way, I knew there was love and I knew there was more with God. I just knew that. Although I wasn't experiencing it, I knew there was more. People say when you're born, you lose a lot of that memory and when you're earthbound, you just learn what is on earth from your parents or your caregivers. But I knew there was more and always did. And that's why I was so riveted and, oh, it struck me so, it just struck me so much when I saw his his statue on the landing because I was aware of the love, although I never received it on earth, but I knew that God was love and love was God, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it's it does, and I think it's it's a beautiful reminder of this connection that we all have, but that we do 
we do either turn away from or forget or our conditioning, as you said, from our parents or, or just life itself, we're taught to believe something else, that other things are more important. So this bond of yours with the divine went on to support you, Sonia, through a very, very uh, challenging childhood and later as well throughout some challenging experiences in adulthood. Uh, tell us about the ways in which you were supported by this knowledge of this infinite love that was was there. And just tell us a bit about, you know, what ended up happening from the age of seven onwards when you had that understanding that things were just going to get harder. Well, I talked to God every night in my bed and all the, it's been hard to explain really being supported by God I always knew he was there, but I the suffering, the suffering and the pain did not match up to God's love. And that was very hard to explain this because I knew how much he loved me and I knew how much I loved him. And I loved him so much. And yet it did not marry up with what I was experiencing, but yet I accepted it. And so I always believed in God no matter what happened. I never, ever lost faith. You know, mm. some people that have been through these experiences do lose faith and they do blame God for everything that's happened because what happened in the orphanages in the name of God caused a lot of people to turn away from him. And yet I didn't because I don't know why I didn't. People often said to me, why do you still believe in God, honestly, you know, with what happened to you in the Catholic Church? And I said, because I just do. He didn't do anything. He didn't do anything to me. Hum humans did. And th this is what I used to say to people. So I always felt supported by him regardless. Even when things were so bad, I still felt supported by him because he himself was not doing this to me. His other children were. And this is what was so upsetting, that his other children were doing this to me. I had compassion even for my mother. I never hated her. I never hated the nuns. I didn't like what they did to me. And I ended up traumatised and certainly very different than probably what I would have turned out to be, the essence of me that the essence that I should have been, could have been, was gone, but yet I didn't understand why God's children, my brothers and sisters, were doing this to me. And this is what I don't understand to this day. And, um, yes, I still don't understand why there is so much violence and horror in this world. I really don't understand it. It's very difficult to understand uh, man's inhumanity to man. It is. It is uh, It is so hard to understand. And, you know, a lot of people that have had shocking lives and been in orphanages and traumatised and abused sexually, physically and every other way, they end up in jail, a lot of them. And I understand it. I understand it. But at the end of the day, we get to choose. We choose how we react. I mean, I understand why they're in jail. I've even worked in jails uh, at one point in my life. 
and I understand why they're there, but we do get to choose at the end of the day which way we want to go. But I understand why they're there, why they've allowed all this hardship and heartache and trauma to affect them so badly. I get it. I understand it. Sonia, tell us a little bit about what went on to unfold from that point of you having that experience of understanding that things would get harder. Just uh, for our audience who perhaps haven't yet read your memoir and uh, don't yet know too much about you, just if you could give us, and I know that there's a lot here and, you know, we probably can't go into it too much, but just if you could give us a snapshot of how life ended up unfolding for you from that point on. As an adult? From from the age of seven, after you had that experience, uh, knowing that things were going to get even harder, the sort of experiences that you had the abuse that you were subjected to by the nuns, just if you can give us a snapshot of that and what what you went through. they did. The nuns were very violent, very brutal, extremely hard. Uh, None of them had an altruistic bone in their body. It was like they were so angry with their own lives and although they were there in the name of God, none of them were godlike. Uh, they used to beat us badly with their fists, with the strap. Uh, I used to be beaten unconscious. I remember uh, I was eight years old when I fell unconscious with one beating. They just seemed to have no remorse. They were living a life that I think perhaps they shouldn't have been living. They certainly shouldn't have been in the convent caring for children. And um, I think... They had reached a tipping point where they had the power to treat us whichever way they could, and there was no, um, you know, uh, there was no one for them to answer to, not even the governments. And um, in the orphanages, this might be a bit hard to take. Uh, children were killed in the orphanages. Uh, they were beaten so badly that um, they were buried under the ground and. When, when the governments did come and ask where a certain child was, they would say they ran away and they were believed by the police and social welfare. And that child ran away and that was it because no one cared back in those days. No one cared, no one gave a damn, and children disappeared. There was one child. This is going to be really hard for people to take. This was, this is, this was my life and this was a lot of children's lives. One girl, her baby brother, I think he was three or four, uh, boys used to come in with the girls when they were little and the little boy was crying and the nurse, pun- the sister punched him in the head and he had a tumour on the brain and the tumour burst and killed him of his uh, sister, she was about seven. So uh, that little boy was never to be seen again. So, you know, none of this stuff came out in the Royal Commission, why I did write about that. And, um, this is the type of things that they did. People might be really aghast and horrified 
about this information and that I could even talk about this kind of thing. But this is what humans do to one another. This is what I didn't understand. How people can be so cruel and so vile, children, to anyone. These are the kind of things they did. They would beat you till you were unconscious. They would beat you until you were dead, some of them. It happened over the years. And um, there was one boy who was beaten so badly by the carer. Uh, he was kicked down the stairs, and when he fell down the stairs, he hit his head and he died. And uh, there's many of these stories that no one wants to know about. They're too traumatic. They don't want to believe that the Catholic Church and the nuns and the brothers and the priests could do such a thing. And it's just too horrific, they don't want to know. But these are the things that happened in the orphanages. These are the things, some of the things I witnessed, and um, just some things you don't want to know. People don't want to know, don't want to hear. But this is the way humans treat one another and treat God's gift, the children that come into this world that people just don't want. It is That is indeed hard to hear, but it's important to hear those children that you witnessed dying at the hands of others who should have been caring for them. For them. They deserve to be honoured and remembered, and even in this small way that we can offer them today. It's, yeah, it's appalling. It's beyond, beyond belief, and we'd probably need a completely separate podcast to discuss all of the issues that have come up in that, in that one, one response that you've given us there. But today, principally to talk about how your spiritual experiences buoyed you throughout life, and certainly you've had some very powerful moments, and I'd love if you could talk about them now, starting with the near-death experience that you had when you were 14. Oh, well, that was absolutely the most beautiful thing that ever happened to me. I was 14 years old, and... Uh, I was walking to the hospital with my sister because I had acute pain for three days and my appendix burst and on the way to the hospital I had this near-death experience where everything had become white. The white was so brilliant, not white like on earth. It was just so beautiful, so brilliant and peaceful. And I knew I was dying because I would have been dead within 20 to 30 minutes before surgery. And the love I felt on the other side was absolutely breathtaking. There are no words to describe the love on the other side. Not only the love, the peace. That, that's what struck me the most was the peace on the other side. And you might think love is peace and peace is love, but they're separate. And um, they were so profound, so beautiful. And when I was on the other side, I, I had no desire to, to, to be anything or do anything but just be loved. I was loved so much on the other side and I was loved. I was, oh, God, there are no to describe what it's like being in God's world and not on earth. It is just so beautiful and I just wanted to be there and I didn't I didn't want to come back at all. I felt 
I had no need for for clothing. I wasn't cold. I wasn't hot. I wasn't thirsty. I wasn't hungry. All my needs were met. Everything I needed was there. And do you know what that need was? Love. It's all about love. That's what we're here for, to be loved and to love. It's all about love and loving one another. And it was just so beautiful and I did not want to come back at all. And um, I don't know, it's very hard to explain. There are no words. I understand that it's impossible basically to describe from hearing many accounts of near-death experiences and yours is is as beautiful as they come. But uh, did you have a sense of yourself as a body, as Sonia? How did the actual experience play out for you in your consciousness? The experience was everything was all white. I hadn't gone through a tunnel and gone into a landscape of a beautiful garden or anything like that because I hadn't actually died. I was dying. And when when you're dying, you often see your loved ones coming for you or God or Jesus or Mary or whoever's there for you. What I saw was a glimpse of heaven and the love that was in heaven. And when when I say God, God was there simply because he is love, love is God, God is love. And the, the experience, it was like it was like I was still Sonia, but my whole world had changed. It was everything I ever wanted was to be with God because I used to pray every night to go to heaven and experience God. And I did get to experience that, even though it was for a short time. But everything was white and the love, it was like, I I don't know if the, all the white was wings. I don't know if it was wings of angels or what it was. It was as though I was being prepared for the journey further. But then all of a sudden that was gone. And when I woke up from surgery, I was terribly upset that I didn't that I didn't die. And then did you have a sense of your twin sister or the reasons why you didn't die? Did that did you begin to understand that? Did you get any sense of a purpose that you had to fulfill here? Anything like that? No. I didn't have a sense of purpose. I was so upset that I didn't die and that I was back. I was really disappointed and very depressed over that. And I, at 14, I didn't have a sense of purpose. I just had, um, there was no sense of future for me at that time. I often wondered about that over my life, you know, what was that all about? But at that time, I had no sense of purpose, no sense of nothing. All I wanted was love. All I wanted was to be loved. I had never known it all my life and all I ever wanted was that and I felt that and I got that. But from that when I woke up, when I woke up in my bed, I cried and I was so upset that I wasn't taken. And that's understandable because as you've explained, you and I think it's hard for people to to get a sense of this and um, you, do, you do a beautiful job in your book, The Girl in the Locker, of it, conveying this, but, Sonia, you truly did not have anybody in your life apart from your, your sister 
to be close to, to show you a kindness, to embrace you, to to show love in any sort of way. So just imagining that then in your experience, I'm just trying to imagine how that must have felt to suddenly be overwhelmed with the very thing that you so, so want. I was overwhelmed by it all. It was the most beautiful experience in my entire life. And I've never had it since. And living in a world without love is very painful. It's very painful and very taxing. Even my twin sister, she, we were together, but she, she didn't know how to love me. And I didn't know how to love her. We did put hand in hand and we were together and we held each other's hand through different things, but we didn't know how to express love or to define it. We never cuddled each other. We we never went through life holding on to one another, embracing one another, because we never saw that. We didn't see that. We didn't feel that. We didn't know that. Why do you think that you were allowed this glimpse into this other world of, of love? kind of the opposite to what you are experiencing on earth? Because I prayed every night from the age of seven to go up to heaven and leave this world so that I could be in the arms of God and be in his loving arms. And I believe what you focus on, what you think about and what you pray about is what you're going to get. And so I asked for that for seven years. I wanted to know that and I wanted to feel that. And I did. So I got what I asked for. And this is, so this is what I believe in. If you ask and you pray for something, you receive it. And I received that. And perhaps there is a purpose. Maybe the purpose is God's messages, getting this book out and trying to help people to love one another and that the most important thing in life is love, especially with your children and your family and just being kind to people and loving to people and not short-tempered and impatient and, you know, a lot of people today don't have much time for their children. You know, everyone's so busy with everything. Children get lost in the shuffle. At the end of the day, on your deathbed, what are you going to say? Oh, how much money did I make? Did I get that business that I wanted? Or how much did I love my children? Did I love my children enough? Was I loving? Was I kind? That's what's left for you on your deathbed. You know, not the materialistic stuff. But did you love your children? Did you love your family? Were you there for them? What was important for you? These are the reflections that you're having now as um, a mature woman, Sonia. But I wonder if how how the NDE as a 14-year-old girl impacted your life. Um, I don't. It didn't really impact my life as I grew up and got older and got married. I never thought about it. I was so busy uh, living my life, uh, being abused again by a violent alcoholic. Life was what it was for me. I never thought about my NDE then. I didn't even think much about 
um, God at that time. He was always in the background. I always thought about him. But I was just too busy living my life and being abused yet again. And it wasn't until I got older that I have started thinking about started thinking about my NDE again. And for years, quite a few years now, I think about nothing else and um, how beautiful it is on the other side. And I keep asking God, why did I have that? Please put me to work. Give me a purpose. Let me serve you. Let me serve humanity. Let me somehow help others to love one another and love their own children. Not that I'm an expert on love, but I'm an expert on knowing what it's like not to be loved. But yet I do know what it's like to be loved by God. That I do know. And that's something you've known throughout your entire life. And as we've touched on, even throughout some of the most horrific experiences a child can endure, including all sorts of physical, emotional, sexual abuse from people that were meant to be caring for you. I wonder, Sonia, what, and you you mentioned God a lot and you're very comfortable with the term, what is your, I guess, what was your definition then as a child and what is your definition of God today? Have they changed? No. I mean, my definition of God is love. I mean, he is pure love, absolutely pure love. And he was then and he is now. God is, and I'm very comfortable with the word God. I mean, some people are ashamed or embarrassed to talk about God and mention his name. I'm very comfortable with it. And to define God to me, is he's pure love. He loves us so much so unconditionally that he just makes you more you know with God in your life he just makes you more of who you are and it's it's wanting to be more for him is what I want is to be more and to I I just want to be spiritually so aware that um I want to pass on this information to others. That's why I wrote God's messages, trying to get, trying to get people to understand that God in their lives would only enrich their lives and make life so much better for everyone. I mean, look at the world today. Look what's happening. Where is the love? People are so far removed from God now. It's not funny. You've only got to look at the world. People are uh, materialistic now, you know. Everyone's on their devices and, and, you know, we need to have this and that and this. Although we're having something of a wake-up call at the moment, aren't we? It's a real wake-up call, you know, and at the end of the day, you know, at the end of the day, what are we here for? You know, people are sitting at home now wondering, well, what will I do? I'm so bored. You know, I mean, what is life really about? I think it's a time of reflection. It's a time to think. What are we doing? Why are we bored? What What else is there, you know? I do. And I'd, I want to, as we continue with our conversation, I want to come back to your book, God's Messages, and talk about what inspired you to write it and what exactly the book is. But before we jump forward too much, 
I'd like to just go back to your childhood just after your NDE and just pick it up there. You almost died in the nun's care and they sent you and your twin sister Sarah back to live with your mother. Now, if you can just tell us about this time, what happened and how you, you felt about this transition. Well, for a start, I was happy to go home. I was happy to leave the orphanage. I left the orphanage from the hospital. I was more than happy to go home. But once home, things weren't, you know, as I would have liked. Mum was terribly hard. Uh, She was incapable of feeling and she was not a loving mother or a caring mother. She herself had her own problems. Uh, We both went to work. She took us out of school, had us exempted out of school, which upset me terribly because I wanted to stay in school. I was a straight-A student and I loved going to school, especially to an outside school, a day school, where I got to come home every night. But um, I was very unhappy to be taken out of school and sent to work to mind-numbing jobs. Uh, Life was pretty harsh. Uh, Sandra and Mum didn't get along very well. I did everything I could to appease Mum, but Sandra retaliated. And uh, Sandra's her real name. Yep, sorry about that. that. That's okay. Yeah, no, yeah, everyone thinks she's Sarah, but, yeah, Sandra was her real name. And um, uh, she retaliated against mum and she ended up in a home for bad girls, I believe, because mum was beating her with a strap one day and he threw her across the bed and Sandra retaliated and kicked her in the stomach and, her mum reported her for abusing her, but it was the other way around. And Sandra ended up in um, Glebe Shelter for young girls and uh, she was in there, I think, uh, a few months. And so this turned Sandra against mum even more. So there was no love for mum from Sandra and yet I still loved mum. Don't ask me why, but I did. I always loved her. I never hated her. I tried to tried to hate her but I I couldn't and I always loved her although she wasn't loving but yeah life was wasn't that much better when we went home as a matter of fact at some stage I wished I was back in the orphanage because um, I had missed the other girls Uh, there was no one really at home for me except Sandra but by the time Sandra was 16 she had left home so there was just me and mum And um, by the time I was 17, Mum had met a man and I was in the way, so I was thrown out. She actually found me a place to live. I lived in a room in another family's home. So I was alone again and had no one. And That's what happened from the space of 14 to 17. So things didn't go too well. We, We weren't exactly you know, welcomed in mum's life. Sadly, mum found solos with men and, you know, rather than her children and what can I say? And she had lots of trauma of her own, I yes. think, you touch on in the book later. Yeah. Later you found out. Yes, her life was pretty sad as well. She was the youngest of ten children, so not much love for her either. She had a pretty tough time of it herself, so... 
she didn't sort of think, well, I didn't get any love, so I'll love my children. It was I didn't get any love, so I don't know how to love my children. And, and uh, we weren't, we were in the way, really. We were just in the way. And um, 17, I lived in this house with this other family where I really wasn't welcomed. I had to do everything in my room as well as eat in my room, allowed to watch their TV or Life was very lonely and that's when I used to wish I was back at the orphanage. At least I would have been there till I was 18. I would have finished my education perhaps. When was the turning point, do you think? At what point did you begin to reclaim your life? Oh, I didn't reclaim my life till I was 40. Yeah. So as you said, like you married a, a violent man. How old were you when that happened? I married him when in 1982 in April. I was 31. I all I wanted was the home with a picket fence and a dog, everything I'd never had. And I was hoping that uh, he could offer me these things, the happiness and the the house and the dog and the picket fence and all that that it, most women dream of. But he was a very violent man. I saw all the signs. I knew walking down the aisle to run. I kept getting the messages, turn around and run, but I didn't. I kept walking and ended up with 10 years with a very violent man. And um, (laughs) I just kept making uh, one mistake after another. So I didn't reclaim my life for a long time. And so how did that happen? What steps did you take towards healing and, and how did that unfold? Well, I was 40 years old at this stage and I had already told my husband I was leaving him. And I woke up one morning with my head still on the pillow and I just thought to myself, there's got to be more to life than this. There just has to be. I didn't know what there was or if there was. All I knew was there had to be more than what I had. That was the morning I decided to to really leave my husband this time and move on and try and have a better life for myself. And that was when I started to read books on personal development. That's when I started learning things that I had never learned as a child. I started learning about family dynamics and how people are supposed to treat one another and how to engage with people in a positive way and how to, um, you know, have your needs met in a positive way and all this kind of thing that I learned from books. I just loved reading. I read books on self-development, Louise Hay to uh, all kinds of people and um, that's that's where I started uh, learning and changing. I started going to therapy. Therapy helped a lot too but I also had the desire to want more and to know more and to experience love and to experience life where I'm not being abused. That's what I wanted for myself. I didn't necessarily want another marriage. I just wanted to be free of abuse. And, you know, some people find happiness with a man. I found happiness being able to go to bed at night and not being abused, waking up in the morning free, doing what I wanted, when I wanted, how I wanted and being allowed to think and have thoughts that weren't ridiculed and 
berated because, you know, I wasn't thinking the way someone else was. You've made that clear that you had this deep driving motivation and intention to heal and perhaps that's the key as well. That's something that's very crucial to even beginning to take step to, steps towards recovering from the kind of abuse that you experienced, would you say, Sonia? Very much so. You know, um, I had the yearning and the desire to, to, to experience life in a different way and to move on and try and do something positive with my life. I was just tired of being abused and living that life. I mean, 40 years of it, I mean, it was just too much. And you had children as well? I had children, yes. So by this time I had three children. And you mentioned earlier your mum, you know, she had not experienced love. She didn't know how to love her own children. But you managed to break that cycle. You also did not experience love and kindness and yet you didn't continue that cycle of abuse and neglect towards your own children. How do you think you managed that? I think I managed that because of the experience I had with God when I was back in the orphanage when I was seven on the landing. Although I was abused, I didn't turn out to be an abuser, although I was not a great mother with my first child because I did not know how to love her. I hadn't experienced it, so I didn't know how to love her. She would have felt that. So by the time I knew how to do this, I had two other children, and they got the gift of that. And so I was—I think I was so numb to the core. Well, I was numb to the core. I didn't know how to feel anything. All of a sudden, when my son was little, I had this love just overwhelm me, this, these feelings of love overwhelm me so much that I knew then how to pass that on to my children. I didn't know that with my first child. So I was no longer numb to the feeling of what could be and what love could feel like, earthbound love, certainly not God's love. I wanted to love my children. I wanted, I wanted to give them what I never had. I wanted to love them and give them my time. What everything that I never had. So I tried to be a good mother and a kind mother, compassionate mother. That That's what my last two children received. And they have both said to me that I was a good mother, that I was a kind mother. So to me, that means a lot, considering where I've come from. Yes. And have you been able to repair the relationship with your your first child your daughter I have tried a couple of times but it didn't work out so sometimes you know you've just got to let things be and all I do is I send her love I send her love and peace every day and that's all I can do because sometimes you've just got to let things go let things be and I tried to repair that a couple of times, just didn't work. And so, Sonia, while you were taking these steps to begin to reclaim your life at the age of 40, to begin to heal, you commence therapy, you begin reading widely, 
The same couldn't be said of your twin, Sandra. Sadly, she took another path. What, what happened <clears throat> with Sandra? Sadly, um, Sandra never had the strength to do better for herself and to spend time caring for herself. And she also found solace in the arms of men. And she went on to have three sons and uh, ended up not having a relationship with any of them either. Sandra was so traumatised by what happened to us in the orphanages, as was I, but it affected her differently. She, she just didn't have the strength to do anything for herself. She never gave herself any time to heal herself. She never went to therapy. And she was just severely traumatised by what happened to us, especially in the barn, what happened to us in front of one another. She, she just couldn't get past it. As much as you're able to, Sonia, could you please just fill us in a little bit more about that horrific moment and what it meant, what happened? Uh, you were in foster care. In the orphanages, we would often go home to foster parents in, uh, for the school holidays. And um, often we were sent to my mother's sister's house. Uh, her and her husband used to take us in the country for some holidays from the age of 10, where <clears throat> our uncle used to take us to the neighbour, which was about half a kilometre up the road. They lived in the country. to take us to a neighbour to watch TV, but before going into his house, he used to take us into their barn. And uh, that was where he raped Sandra and I in front of one another. That was very... That was an out-of-body experience, literally. I left my body while... These things were happening, and whilst I was being violated, Sandra would be sitting amongst the hay, pulling her little dress over her knees some way, somehow, trying to protect herself, knowing what was happening and what was going to happen to her. We were 10 then. We were 10 years old, and um, if it wasn't me, it was her, or the two of us, but usually one at a time. Yeah, that was all very terrorising and traumatising and we never discussed it. We never had to. We could see in each other's eyes. We knew what happened and we never, we could never talk about it. When our eyes met, we knew. It, we, we couldn't speak about it. Sandra couldn't speak about it. I couldn't speak. So you never did speak to each other about it? Not about that, no never spoke about that we just you know it was too hard to give it voice it was too you see if you talk about it it makes it real and then you have to live with that all over again and deal with that all over again this is what he did to us every time we went there so there was no question of you revealing this to any adult or anybody because nobody's ever helped you before so three years later Three years later, when I was 13, I tried talking about it to mum, but to no avail, nothing done. Yeah, nothing done. So, you see, 
<clears throat> if you try speaking up about things and nothing is done, well, then you just don't bother. No one's going to help you anyway, so just don't bother and you just live with that as well. So, and I think back on my sister's life and um, especially, well, she's gone now, she's in a better place, but, you know, I understood why her life was. She she tried to find love the best way she can and that was in the arms of men and... Um, that was the only way she could get some kind of love for herself, whether it was real or not real for her. That was her life. So this horrific moment in, in the barn or moments, you, through therapy later as, a, as an adult, you were able to, to discuss it or to acknowledge it in some way to begin to find steps toward healing, Sonia? Would that be accurate to say? But your sister never was able to recover from that. He never went into therapy, and when I went into therapy, I never talked about these things. I wrote them down and handed them to the therapist or the psychiatrist, the psychologist. I could never speak what happened, but I could write about it, and then, and then they would know, and then they would know then what questions to ask me. And that's how it was for a long time, and that's why, you know, I wrote so graphically in the book because I can write about it, but to speak so graphically about it, I still can't to this day. But um, I could write about it, and that was cathartic. And, um, you know, that helped me a lot getting it up and out somewhat, although it, it never leaves you altogether. I mean, it stays with you forever, but it's certainly a lot easier to bear. But Sandra never had the capacity to do that she was just helpless she didn't mm. know how to help herself she didn't know how to help her children she didn't know how to love her children she didn't know how to love herself you know she she was so violated as was I that there was nothing left to give I mean if that was love well we don't want to know about it at around this time that you are finding some catharsis in writing about these things and uh, seeing your therapist, was that also at the time that you began to tap back into what you'd experienced in the NDE? Because as you said, there were many years where you, it's not that you forgot about it, but you didn't really think about it or remember it very much. But now that you're, you are taking steps towards healing, is this when you went back and remembered it? Yes. I went back and remembered uh, I would have started back in therapy when I was 41. I went and saw a psychiatrist for the first time. This is when I started to reflect on my life and think back to all those times and all those years and started thinking about God again. And I asked God, you know, I said to him, what was the purpose of it all? Because if there's no purpose, I can't live with this either. If there's no, if there was no rhyme or reason for it, then what the hell? You know, it, give, give me some purpose, put me to work. And I kept asking God, put me to work then, give me a purpose. You know, there has to be a rhyme or reason for all of this, so let me use that. Let me use that pain to do good and to help others. That's what I've always wanted to do. 
and I'm still waiting to do that. Although I do believe from the feedback I've had from the girl in the locker, uh, some of the feedback was just amazing and, and I just couldn't believe what some people wrote. What did they tell you? One man wrote to me that um, he was sitting in church one day and his pastor came up to him and gave him my book, The Girl in the Locker, and he said, you should read this book. And he read it and he said that it made him cry, it made him think. He said it made him want to be a better person, a better father and a better husband, and it made him want to love his children so much more. And I thought, wow, I've helped somebody to want to love his children more and his wife and his neighbours and himself. And that was just one. And Mm -hmm. I had another man that told me that he had twins and he said that he loves them very much and that he is a good father. But after speaking with me, reading my book, he wants to love them even. And I got... So many messages with this kind of thing. Some of them said that um, they couldn't believe how I could forgive, that they could never forgive what happened to them, let alone what happened to me. And some people said that um, because of my book that they have forgiven their own family for what they had done to them because of my book. So more people forgave than didn't. So I guess there's a purpose there, right? They're the ones that contacted me and that doesn't count the people that haven't contacted me. So I guess silently, you know, there's a purpose there. Sonia, you mentioned forgiveness, which is such a touchy topic for so many people, very sensitive, a very personal topic. It means different things to different people. Tell us what forgiveness means to you and how you arrived at forgiving. I always wanted to forgive. I never wanted to hold on to the stuff. And I think, again, it goes back to when seven. I didn't want to hang on to the stuff. I didn't want to be bitter. I wanted to be better. I wanted to move on and I wanted so much to forgive and I didn't know how to because I was so filled with so much stuff. So I went through a ritual where I wrote down in a sentence what each person had done to me. And and then I would go in the yard and as I would burn the I would burn the paper saying, I forgive you, I release you with love and let go. And I did this ritual for about a year, eighteen months before it actually felt like I had truly released everyone that had done anything wrong to me. Forgiveness it releases me and it frees me from the stuff. They still have to suffer the consequences of their actions and deal with their own stuff with what they've done. It released me. But in doing this forgiveness ritual, it took a year and a half roughly for it to actually feel like I had truly forgiven them because. About a month later, something would come up that would upset me and I'd be so upset and traumatised yet again over a trigger. So I'd think to myself, well, I really haven't forgiven any of this stuff keeps coming, keeps coming up. So I would go through the ritual again over and over 
until finally I felt absolutely relieved and free. And I just let them all go with love. It just set me free because holding on to the stuff kill you quicker than anything else. The toxic feelings, yeah. they, they harm us. Yeah. Yes, they do. Our stuff is, is just so toxic and poisonous to our very soul, our very being, and um, I just didn't want to carry it around anymore. When you do forgive someone, it sets you free and hopefully some way they will feel that, they will feel that forgiveness, perhaps then they can change and perhaps forgive themselves for what they've done. True forgiveness for me, though, is not only forgiving someone and letting them go, but not talking ever again about what they've done. Because, you know, that's not true forgiveness. Forgiveness does not speak ill of the forgiven. And so if you truly forgive someone, then you forget about it. A lot of people say, I can forgive that I can't forget. That's not true forgiveness. That's, there's no power in that, no healing in that. You have to let it go. And okay, a trigger might come up occasionally because the way life is, that's the way the mind is. You just release it with love again and let it go. Because if you can't forget about it, then that's still going to eat you up inside. As you said, Sonia, it, this doesn't mean that you are releasing the person from the effects of their their actions it doesn't mean that you're not seeking justice and indeed you you pursued justice in some ways through the courts can you tell us briefly about that yes with the royal commission there was a lot of organizations set up by the government i did have a meeting with three orders of the nuns that had raised me in the orphanages and there was a meeting set up with these nuns for three months in advance. And I met with these nuns and they were the most beautiful, nicest women that you could meet. And we met for about two hours and they asked me about my life and what happened and I told them. At the end of it, they did give me some compensation and um, But what they gave me the most was so much love. At the end of it, I said to one of them, I said, can I give you a hug? And they said, oh, yes. And I think they wanted to hug me from the beginning but didn't know whether I would, you know, dismiss them and hate them. Maybe they felt I hated the nuns and everything to do with them. Three of them hugged me so much for so long it was just absolutely beautiful. And they said to me that if we were raising you, life would be very different. They apologised so much to me. I said, Sonia, we are so sorry that these things happened to you. Can you forgive us? And yes. And it was a beautiful experience. But these nuns didn't do anything to me. They didn't do anything. They weren't there. They were really beautiful women. I had in contact with them for that sounds like a very powerful moment. Yeah. It was. It was mm -hmm. truly a powerful moment. Now, speaking of 
forgiveness and reconciliation and finding ways to move forward with your life, you had a very, very powerful spiritual encounter with the spirit of your mum. Now, this is an astonishing extended experience unlike any I've ever heard before. Please tell us about that in as much detail as you can. Well, one night I was in bed and I saw this figure floating at the end of my bed on the side of my bed. Were you awake, Sonia, sitting up in bed? (laughs) You were? Yes, I was. I was awake. I was awake all right and I thought to myself, what? I was so scared of this vision I saw this this person this vision at the end of my bed on the side of my bed just floating her her feet were at the the level of the mattress and uh, she was floating there and although she was um, transparent and not although she was not she was transparent but you could see through her she had a definition she was very defined and very beautiful. And I saw saw this figure and I thought, holy hell, what's this? And I shoved my head under the blankets and I just knew straight away it was my mother because I was so shocked at this vision. I was scared but elated at the same time. I put the blankets back down under my chin and I said, Mum? She said, yes. You heard her voice. Was it... The, yes, the she voice. spoke to me yeah. telepathically. Okay. We, we yes. See, t- they speak to you telepathically, not you know loud like a human being. I was her apparition oh. still there when she spoke? When you lifted your chin up out of the covers? Oh yes, she was there. All right, she wasn't <laughs> going anywhere. <laughs> hung around. She literally hung around for. <laughs> For a long time. That's and, what's amazing. But tell us, please, what happened uh, in this first experience? So she said yes, that was her, and then what happened? Well, then all of a sudden it just fell out of my mouth. This anger rose up in me and I, it just fell out of my mouth. And I said, do you know what happened to us in the orphanages? You know, why did you leave us, you know? Do you know what happened to us? You weren't there. You left us. You know, I was so angry. All this stuff just fell out of my mouth and she said to me, she said, Sonia, this is why I'm here. She said, I want to tell you I am so sorry and I love you so much and I'm just so sorry. She said, when I was on earth, I got it so wrong. And then I burst into tears. She said, this is what I've come to tell you. This is why I'm here. And I prayed all my life to hear those words from my mother because I never heard them when she was alive. Never once did she tell me she loved me. Never once did she tell me that he was sorry for anything. But yet I prayed all my life that I would hear these words. And once she died, I thought, well, there goes that. I'll never hear these words. But yet I prayed for them and here they were. That's where we're going to leave it today. Please tune in to the next episode to hear about the ramifications of this extraordinary experience with the spirit of her mother. And we'll also hear about how the rest of Sonia's life unfolded following this healing encounter. Thanks again.
Thank you for listening to Spirit Sisters, the podcast, based on my best-selling book of the same name. I really hope you enjoyed this episode and will join me again next time for another intriguing conversation exploring mysteries and marvels. In the meantime, please subscribe so that you won't miss an episode. I also welcome your feedback, so please message me through my website, karinamachado.com, or find me on Facebook at Karina Machado Author. Perhaps you have your own encounter to share. If so, I'd love to hear it. After all, there's nothing more powerful than a story. Thank you.